Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. Demonology is the study of demons, specifically how to classify them and control them. It is an ancient practice that's enjoyed periodic revivals throughout history. In the Western tradition, it stretches back to before biblical times. It became a serious preoccupation during the late Middle Ages into the Renaissance with the rise of Protestantism and the witch craze, and then it took off on on a very different tone in the hands of folks like Aleister Crowley, McGregor Mathers, and others of their ilk during what's come to be called the occult revival at the turn of the 20th century. Traditionally, demons were thought to be the source of disease, not only in tribal cultures, but also in ancient Babylon and Assyria, and among the Jews and the Greeks and the Romans. Disease included spiritual and emotional sickness, as well as physical illness, with demons manipulating the passions of their victims. Identifying and controlling these demons became a preoccupation, as a means for reining in their evil influence. Today's discussion is mostly a walk through a library of primary sources moving through time, as is traditional, except that we're going to do a little bit more, uh, I guess, time movement than we generally do. We're only interested in Judeo-Christian demons today and the non-Western demons who influence them, although there are vast traditions of demons in Hindu and Buddhist cultures, Chinese culture, uh, there's the jinn uh, of Arabian and uh, Islamic culture and beyond. Some of our demonological treatises will get a full treatment. Others, a mention. We can't mention every book about demons, so if we leave out your favorite, please don't be offended. As always, we're trying to track the themes and beliefs that have carried over through time and that partially determines our focus. For our secondary sources, I went to the archive to dig up some classics. The Religion of Babylonia and Syria by Morris Jastrow Jr., T. Witten Davies' Magic Religion and Demonology Among the Hebrews and Their Neighbors, and Montague Summers' History of Witchcraft and Demonology, which I encourage anyone to read with a great big old tasty grain of salt. Uh, Montague Summers, that is. Anyway, let's get to it. My name is Rob, Rob C. Thompson, the Supreme Hierophant of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors. This day I am joined by not one, but two literal sisters. Olivia, our Grand Master of the Order. Hello! And Brianna, our Metallurgic Prophet. Hey. What's up? How are you guys doing? Alright. You ready for some demons? I'm always ready for demons, Rob. Every day. Literal sisters are a big fan of demons. Yeah, we really are. <laughs> you didn't have the uh, teeny bopper posters on your wall. You had pictures of like Beelzebub and... <laughs> no, we just have a whole Asmodeus. lot of demons. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you take that for what you will. No yeah. posters. Okay, fair enough. Mm. <laughs> this is a call confessions. We the members of, of the, the secret, secret order, order of, of alchemical actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. All right, we want to uh, open up those plugs, Olivia. Plug, plug, plug. Let's be generous today uh, and plug some of our friends out in the podcast sphere. We have uh, Life Mancy out there doing manciful life things uh bringing life rachel she's based in texas uh fun show very uplifting uh we want to thank some patrons we got mickey m of new orleans who found us through our marie laveau episode now mickey says we're his favorite podcast we've also got david f and are so grateful to have david and shiloh Shiloh left us a great review. Apparently, Shiloh is finding all of her family members in our episodes. She's discovered that she comes from a line of theosophists and suspects her grandfather may have been a psychic spy. (laughs) Yeah, way to go, Shiloh. Very cool. Uh, We also want to thank Christina Doe. Please consider joining our Patreon. Uh, You can join for as little as a dollar a month. And uh, $2, $5, the more you uh, add, the the more benefits you get. But there are hours and hours and hours of bonus content, bonus episodes, all sorts of fun stuff over there on Patreon. Uh, And uh, if if you're not ready to make that kind of commitment to us, uh, why don't you buy a t-shirt or leave a review? Olivia, close up those plugs.
Plug, plug, plug. All right, let's go to Babylon, shall we, ladies? We shall. Favorite vacation spot. Yeah. <laughs> Used to be, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like you might get a sunburn. Mm, yeah, for sure. Well, Via might just die if she goes there. <laughs> Burst into flames. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Belief in demons, evil spirits bent on causing harm to humans, probably entered Judeo-Christian tradition through Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, and Persia. The Zoroastrians are often credited with developing the concept of demons under the control of a demon master. Zoroaster, not to be confused with demon master, is the religion's central prophet— Zoroaster talked about devas, or evil spirits, who deceive humankind and are the product of wrong or evil thinking. The most powerful of these is Angra Mainyu, the absolute antithesis of the Zoroastrian god. Sound like anybody you guys know? Like, personally? (laughs) No, I mean, (laughs) sound like a figure from another religion we may be familiar with. Ah, okay. The absolute antithesis of god, we would call this being satan is that what yeah, you want yeah i think so you want the satan. devil satan lucifer who do you want which one t devil okay <laughs> uh yeah basically so, arguably the zoroastrians invented the concept of the devil arab tradition differentiated between angels devils and jinn the jinn could be evil but they could also be good whereas the devil was always evil and the angel was always good muhammad allowed for belief in the jinn but forbade their worship so this is true muhammad uh, taught his disciples that there were jinn in the world fire spirits egyptians believed the demons caused sickness death and misfortune They were particularly committed to the idea that disease was associated with demons to the degree that their magic and medicine became deeply intertwined. Let's get to those Babylonians now. The Babylonians devoted a lot of energy in writing to separating spirits from gods. Demons were a class of spirits committed to evil acts. Gods were generally more powerful, but demons could rise to a power that rendered them nearly godlike. Gods were favorably disposed toward humans and could be placated, but demons were generally malicious and could be expelled. Let's go through some uh, types of demons, shall we? First, there are the demons that cause diseases. Hmm. Second, there are the demons of the fields, who appear as serpents and scorpions. When a farmer took possession of a field, he would invoke the demons to side with him against any usurper. You see? So you gotta get the native demon on your side. Yeah. That's who's living there. Next are the underworld demons. These are half-human, half-animal, and inhabit the caves where the spirits of the dead gather. Yeah? That's kind of fun. Yeah, I like that. That's kind of metal. Pretty metal. They are subject to the god of the underworld, Nergal. Oh, I'm sorry. Nergal? That name again is Nergal. Uh, And his consort, Alatu. Underworld dwellers can become demons of the first class when they ascend into the world of the living, where they inevitably cause trouble (laughs) for the humans they discover. So there's a little bit of fluidity. You can move between categories. Babylonian demons were named Uchuku, Shedu, Alu, and Galu to indicate strength and greatness. Also, Lilu and Lilitu, night spirit. Ikimu, the Caesar. That's not like Julius (laughs) Caesar, but, you know, like you get seized. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Akazu, the capturer. Not really sure how we differentiate the capturer from the... Oh, 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 I do, I know. The capturer would capture you, but the Caesar might cause... uh, like a seizure. Oh, jeez. Okay. Oh. Oh, you know? like a seizure. Like a medical like issue. A seize. you. Like you're yeah, seizing. You, you get seized up, yeah. Mm. Oh. Rabisu is the one who lies in wait. Oh. Oh, it's spicy. Labartu is the oppressor and Labasu is the overthrower. Okay, but you're telling me we have all these cool titles and names, and then we just have Nergal? <laughs> well, Nergal's in charge, yeah. <laughs> okay, whatever. 
<laughs> if you can get through all these, you know, badass demons with a name like Nurgle, you must be tough. I guess so. You'd have to be with a name like Nurgle. <laughs> yes. So they lurked in graves, ruins, on mountaintops, and in the wilderness, and were most active at the darkest hours of night. So they sound a little bit like uh, Japanese uh, spirits, Shinto spirits in that way. Uh-huh. The kami, they they have all these different uh, mm-hmm. places in the natural world, or you know, Greek uh, gods and otherworldly beings, nymphs and things. They moved soundlessly and entered houses like snakes through cracks and crevices. Once they'd taken hold of their victims, they tortured them for their own sadistic pleasure. They could cause headaches or pandemics. So by that I mean they span the full gamut. They could give you a little, you know, minor complaint, or they could wipe out a population. Jeez. They could drive a person insane, and they could inflame the passions. Demons called Arde Lili, for example, were female sp- spirits who sexually excited their victims and then left them unsatisfied. Yeah, they did. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I feel like Bree has a new favorite demon every 15 seconds or so. I just love them all. I can't. <laughs> I can't. I just, they're all special to me. It's like Pokemon. She might <laughs> uh, visit a man's dreams, but she wasn't alone in this power. The Rabisu and the Bartu were known to cause nightmares. Demons could drive birds from their nests. They could also kill livestock. They were believed to be the cause of the eclipse, and Assyrian kings placed the Shedu or Lamasu demons at the entrances of their temples and palaces to secure their protection. The famous human-headed winged bulls you've probably seen in an art museum are just such a demon. So, you know, they, they're dangerous and they do bad things to us, but it's also possible in this culture for us to use them to our advantage because they're scary. That seems to be like a consistent theme, though, in a lot of cultures. So, like, a lot of, like, Scandinavian and, like, uh, European cultures have like different forms of like puka that they use like as a protector for the fields. You have a puka share type deal. I wonder to what extent these ideas are drawn from the Babylonians. Are they maybe the root of these beliefs? What do you think? Is it possible? I don't know. It's just maybe. They're just everything is so interconnected when it comes to stuff like this. There's no way that it's just like coincidence. Like there has to be something that's lining them up. I don't know. A root experience. Yeah. Yeah. And when we get to Solomon and all the things we're going to be talking about later, this notion that demons are dangerous but can be wielded to your own benefit just lingers on. Spirits of disease were believed to rise out of the soil. Namtar was the demon of the plague, and Ashaku, the demon of the wasting disease. It's like sort of starving, I think. It's a disease that caused you to waste away. What's that? Is it like famine, kind of? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, yeah. I think, just, but I think it's a it's like a disease. Away. Yeah, it's there's a disease an actual that disease. Famine. It's a wasting disease. It like basically turns your stomach to like sand. Like it's gross. Oh, uh, yeah, there there it is. Yeah, so it, you would it would look like you're experiencing <clears throat> starvation, but and I guess you would be. It's yeah. just not because you you can't access food. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. <laughs> These, well, right in, friends. These demons were unique in that their power was focused on the epidemic. So the folks that I'm talking about, Namtar, Ashaku, that they were focused on these mass diseases rather than individual complaints. So the wasting disease would be something that would ravage a population. Babylonian magical texts were comprised of incantations, and the collection of Babylonian incantations was extensive. Each complaint required its own incantation, and so each priest had to keep a large collection to address any problem that came his way. Most demons could alternate vocations, and so formulas to expel them tended to work in large groups. Many spells are addressed to the seven spirits. The number seven probably wasn't literal, but rather used to designate a whole bunch. So if you, when you're reading an ancient text, this is important. This is going to come up again. When you're reading an ancient text and you see the number seven, that just means that they didn't feel like writing. Yeah, there's a whole bunch. So if like seven guys came to the party, what they really mean is there's a whole bunch of guys at that party. You see what I mean? Yeah, I guess it just sounds better too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, seven, yeah. Yeah, and now it's like a lucky number, but it, it in ancient culture, it's just like a bunch. It's like seven was enough. Like by the time you get to seven, you don't want to keep it counting. Like eight, my goodness, who wants to count to eight? It takes a lot of time. 
You just stop at seven. Yeah, there's a bunch there. Seven, are they? They are seven. In the subterranean deep, they are seven. Perched in the sky, they are seven. They are neither male, nor are they female. They are destructive whirlwinds. They have no wife, nor do they beget offspring. Compassion and mercy, they do not know. Prayer and supplication, they do not hear. Evil are they. They are evil. Seven are they. They are seven, seven, and again, seven are they. Okay, that does it for Babylon. Are you ready to move on to Greater Judea? Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. That's That's nice. Very nice. You two are so excitable about travel. (laughs) The Old Testament was generally opposed to belief in evil spirits. Fun fact. But it lists a bunch anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so the Old Testament is like, you shouldn't believe in evil spirits, but here's some evil spirits over here that you should probably keep in mind. First, there's the serpent in the Garden of Eden. All right. Then there's the hairy ones, who are goat-like demons who dwell in the wilderness. (coughs) You just made me choke on my tea with the hairy ones. The hairy ones. Hairy goat demons. Okay, that's kind of (laughs) cute. I mean, I agree for the record, but... (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Score one for the cute demon. There are the night ghosts. There are the horse leeches or blood-sucking demons. Gonna guess they're not cute. Did you say horse leeches? Horse leeches. Oh my are they god. Leeches the sizes of the size of horses? Or do they or half horse, half leech? Okay. Oh, oh. <laughs> we went <laughs> <Well>, Olivia. <laughs> they're gonna think different I'm way. real dumb, but I went <laughs> a different way. I don't know if we have anybody listening who's an expert on horse leeches. That seems pretty esoteric, but it's possible. Mm-hmm. Mott, M-O-T, demons, <laughs> hovered near the dying. Duma was the angel of death. Shal was a spirit presiding over the underworld, much like Hades or Pluto. And these last three here, Mott, Duma, and Shoal, were regarded as demons, but they could also be friendly. Circumcision was thought to ward away evil. Moses circumcised his son to drive off a devil. What? In... Why, ahead. though? Because just, uh, like, demons, like, hide in the forest again? I think... I... <laughs> they just tuck themselves away in there? I guess there's not a lot of room there, but, you know, demons are kind of immaterial, so they could hide in all sorts of spots. They go through cracks and crevices, so... Mm-hmm. This is the perfect spot for them in the foreskin. I guess so. In some traditions, prayers were only heard after circumcision. So in other words, you couldn't hear a prayer until you had gotten rid of your demon hidey hole. So, uh, wait. <laughs> okay. So now they hear prayers through their circumcised penises. <laughs> um, I, I did not mean to imply that your penis was doing the hearing but rather that they wouldn't speak a prayer if they thought a demon might be hiding in your penis. That was my takeaway from that. I think it's more about the demon possibly being in your penis while you're hearing the prayer. Okay. Got me? Yeah, I get it. In the book of Tobit, T-O-B-I-T, the book of Tobit, uh, which is not uh, the canon, not the biblical canon. It's a, what do you call it? It's one of those extra books. Non-canonical. A fan Uh, fiction? <laughs> well, that's. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't. Maybe throwing out answers. Maybe it's not that. Text. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's 200 years before the Common Era, so it would be non-canonical. BCE. Then are you talking about like yes. how the Dead Sea Scrolls are like question mark, but kind of like not canon, but like yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. We're going to talk about several books today which could have been included in the Bible, but for one reason or another, were not. Gotcha. Because there was a point in time, right, where like just these random guys got together and they like this book and this book, also these books. I like what this guy has to say, mm-hmm. but they left out Tobit and a few other people we'll talk about. So this is 200 years BCE, Book of Tobit, appears in some versions of the Bible, but not others. Fun fact. <laughs> so I guess it is canonical in some cases. Mm-hmm. Tobit tells the story of Tobias, his son, who travels from his home in Nineveh to Ecbatana to claim money 
for his father. On the way, he stops to dangle his legs in the Tigris, and a fish tries to eat his foot. So Tobias <laughs> catches the fish and kills it. Oh my god, that's so a little Tobit bit of a got his toe bit. He did, he did. It's a, no, 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 it was, to, it was Tobias, oh, son of dang Tobit. It. Okay. The son of Tobit got his toe bit. Uh, what, Olivia, that's too rough for you? It's a fish. It was a fish that tried to eat his foot. He didn't need to go killing it. Like, what? I agree, I agree. The fish was just, should have eaten it, its foot? It was in the fish's territory, if anything. Fish don't have feet. No, but what? his feet were dangling in the tigress, and the fish was just in the tigress, so. So you're saying he was asking for it? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're slut-shaming Tobias? No, that's the law of the Tigris and the Euphrates. Like, you don't get it. <laughs> that's the law. It's the unwritten law. Yeah. Everybody knows before they dangle anything in the Tigris. Yeah. His guardian angel, Raphael, who had disguised himself as Tobias's traveling companion, so he's going around with this guy who is actually his guardian angel, which is pretty cool. Raphael says to reserve the fish's heart, liver, and gall for later. So he's like, don't eat that whole thing. Save those organs. In addition to retrieving money for his father, Tobias also had a plan to marry this hot woman named Sarah, despite the fact that Sarah was seemingly cursed. So his job was technically to go get money for dad, but he's like, while I'm over there, I heard there's this really hot chick. I'll marry her. You see, Sarah was loved by a powerful demon, Asmodeus. You guys know what Asmodeus is the demon of? I couldn't tell you, but he's a big dude. I he's used big to dude. know these things. Yeah. Sexy times. He it's is lust, the demon right? of oh. lust. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Oh. Seven men had married the beautiful Sarah and been put to the death the night of their wedding, undone by Asmodeus before they could consummate their union with Sarah. Oh, man, they didn't even get to consummate right. that marriage. Well, I mean, that's how you get through seven guys, because nobody was ever officially really married to her because they didn't consummate the marriage. So she was always a virgin and ready to be married again. And then every time, Asmodeus would just, like, you know, cut him. Cock Took him a long time to Literally. catch on. Seven? <laughs> yeah, you know? Seven. Well, yeah, but we know, Olivia, seven that is seven a bunch. just means a bunch. Right. Yeah, so we... <laughs> but even more so then. Little... Could be more than seven, yeah. Right. Just be eight men. Could be eight or nine She's or 15. We don't know. Super hot. <laughs> She's pretty hot, yeah. So after his wedding to Sarah, Tobias took Raphael's advice and burned the fish's heart and liver. So my man Tobias is not phased by the seven or more men who have died because he's got these fish parts and also an angel who talks to him and like hangs out with him. So he burns the fish parts. And when Asmodeus comes to kill him, the smoke drove the devil all the way to Egypt. Oh shit. Yeah. Cock blocking over. Tobias returned to Nineveh where he used the fish's gall. He had one body part left. Remember, uh, Folklore always works in threes mm. to cure his father. So I didn't mention this. Tobit had uh, had been blinded when a bird pooped in his eyes. <laughs> what a dumb way to go blind. That's a bad day. That's a bad day. It's a, it's a bad day. Because at first you think you're inconvenienced, right? Oh, no, a bird pooped in my eyes. And yeah. then you're blind until your son murders a fish in the Tigris and drags its gall all the way back after his wedding to a demon-cursed woman. Mm. All right, so let's change gears to another, uh, what are we calling it, Brie, non-canonical text. Non-canonical, yes. Oh, we're done with him. Okay. We're done with him. What more do you want from this man? Oh, I guess we're good. He's he's with Sarah now. Got it. (laughs) And that hot wife. Right? And that healthy father. (laughs) Yes. What a life. He can see. Right, okay. He, He can see again. So Enoch... The Book of Enoch, that's where we're on to next. Book of Enoch dates to between three and 100 years before the Common Era BCE, so roughly the same time as Tobit, but it could be older, could be younger. Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah and the book's legendary author. So that's who Enoch is. He writes the Book of Enoch, and he's Noah's great-grandfather. Enoch was excluded from the Old and New Testament canons because of its suggestion that angels could and did rebel against God. 
Enoch also suggests that salvation is a kind of occult phenomenon coming through secret knowledge of God. This is in part why the book proved so inspirational to future occultists. Now, some of you might be surprised to hear that it is outside the canon that angels could or did rebel against God, because many of us know this story, right, of Lucifer rebelling against God. But in fact, this is not or was not considered historically part of the tradition of Christianity that this ever took place. It wasn't conceivable because the angels were an extension of God. It'd be like God rebelling against himself. Because that paradise lost, right, is like really what like started to really frame frame that narrative, right? I think you you maybe I I would be going out on a limb to say for sure, but Milton did quite a bit to popularize that story. Yeah, it's like one of the first real like characterizations of Satan. I know, like I remember learning that in English or whatever, but I don't know. I think that's true. Yeah, Satan. Well, because Satan, I mean, we really see the internal workings of Satan in Milton's Paradise right. Lost, but you know, it's based at least in part on Enoch. Hmm. So Enoch starts with an apocalyptic vision of God returning to earth. And the earth shall be wholly rent in sunder, and all that is upon the earth shall perish, and there shall be a judgment upon all men. But with the righteous he will make peace, and will protect the elect, and mercy shall be upon them. Then the book turns to the story of how the angels fell from heaven. The book calls these fallen angels the Watchers, sort of like on Buffy. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's where they got it. Humans have managed to produce a particularly attractive crop of daughters, and the angels lust after them. Come, let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children. I fear you'll not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone, your leader Samjaza, shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. Let us all swear an oath and all bind ourselves by mutual implications not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Two hundred angels descended, led by ten chiefs with names like Kokabael, Armaros, and Terrell. They sexed the hottest daughters of men and taught them how to do magic. Pretty good deal. Yeah, it sounds like it, I guess. You get to Maybe. have sex with an angel and you get to learn magic. I guess if you want to do those things... It's a much better day, is what I'm trying to say, than a bird pooping in your eye and you going blind. Mm, You're all correct. (laughs) So they knocked them up. Uh, Speaking of the angels, knocked up the daughters of men, and the women all gave birth to giants, which sounds unpleasant in the birthing experience. The giants were super angsty. They were also 3,000 L's high. (laughs) L's? What are L's? L's? I picture like an L is what this, it's as big as like if you make an L with your fingers, you know, like it's the 90s and you want to call someone a loser. I was kind of thinking lemons. You think, why? Why (laughs) do you think it's a lemon? (laughs) I'm just picturing a bunch of lemons stacked. I think a lemon is actually close to the size of an L for the most part, depending on your hand size. I'm looking at my hand and I think that would be about lemonite. I agree. We are, all of us are making wild guesses, and this is not historically accurate. I don't know what an <laughs> oh L is, God. is the real answer. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> E-L-L-S, L's. Anyway, they had sex with livestock, the giants, uh, oh. Oh their children. So we, God, okay. angel's daughter of men produce these giants who go around just like, they just run amok. They, they, they sex up the livestock, they eat people, they eat people's stuff, and then when they get bored with that, they eat each other. Yeah. Okay. And not in like the sexy way. In the Is there a of... sexy version of cannibalism? You know no, what? I don't think so. You know. What <laughs> oh, I mean. oh. Okay. <laughs> I'm still stuck on the horrific part of it. Sorry. You know what I'm saying. In the I midst do. of all this giant violence and cannibalism, the angel Azazel, who is kind of like Satan's counterpart and is often blamed for being the evil serpent in the Garden of Eden, it's death, right? Or the angel of death sort of kind of in some contexts yeah azazel is considered the angel of death i I mean i think the serpent is often considered to be lucifer but Mm. you know there are uh, in other contexts azazel is the serpent and satan is a different entity Mm. anyway azazel starts to teach men how to be horrible 
He teaches them how to make swords and weapons and other implements for making war. He teaches them how to make jewelry. Which but that's not so horrible. horrible. Sort of bad, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess. Then he taught them how to use eyeshadow. Okay. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I'm not making this up. This is in the Book of Enoch. Grace. You want to know why this is bad? Yeah, why is it bad, Rob? Because um, eyeshadow leads to a bunch of fornication. Is that why, like, like it's like a subculture, like, anarchist thing to, like, just wear a ton of eyeliner? Is that where it, like, somehow stems from? Yes, you just have a bunch of people trying to bang you. Yeah, that's... I'm just picturing a bunch of, like, emo... um, I don't even... Just a bunch of, like, black eyeshadow running down their faces with the most (laughs) gaudy jewelry covering them. I mean... Are talking about the angels? That's a mood. The people they're teaching. I'm not... The people they're teaching. (laughs) Okay. That's a vibe. I don't know. I... Yeah. All the other fallen angels taught them about astronomy and meteorology, which apparently led men to die horrifically, presumably in some sort of twister storm chase scenario. Mm. Enoch is That's baffling. a reference. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it just says that they taught them meteorology. So he taught, they taught them about the weather mm. and then they died horrifically. Yeah. There's no other situation where that happens. That's Twister. You have to be chasing tornadoes. I guess, yeah. Some jaws are taught enchantments and root cuttings. Amorose, the resolving of enchantments. Barakajal, astrology. Kobakel, the constellations. Ezekiel, the knowledge of the clouds, and Sariel, the course of the moons. And as men perished, they cried, and their cry went up to heaven. So Michael, Uriel, Raphael, and Gabriel, the good angels, looked down from heaven and saw that earth was kind of a mess, and all the humans were complaining about how the fallen angels were messing everything up with swords and eyeshadow and Doppler radar. And they went to God and said, what should we do about all this? God sent Uriel to give Noah word that a flood was coming. And God sent Raphael to vanquish Azazel. Bind Azazel, hand and foot, and cast him into the darkness. Make an opening in the desert, which is in Dudea, and cast him therein. Place upon him rough and jagged rocks, and cover him with darkness. Let him abide there forever, and cover his face that he may not see light. And on the day of the great judgment he shall be cast into the fire. Heal the earth which the angels have corrupted, and proclaim the healing of the earth, that they may heal the plague, and that all the children of men may not perish through all the secret things that the watchers have disclosed and have taught their sons. The whole earth has been corrupted through the works that were taught by Azazel. To him, ascribe all sin. And God sent Michael to bind Simjaza and his followers for 70 generations in the valleys of the earth and allowed the giants to destroy each other, which they had apparently already started to do anyway. They had apparently lusted for immortality, the giants, that is. But at Gabriel's request, their lives were cut short in bloodshed. This sounds like the Titans a bit in Greek tradition. Mm. Enoch went and spoke with the Watchers and took their petition for forgiveness to God. He had a dream in which God and his angels sent back a reprimand to the Watchers. And in that dream, God revealed to Enoch that the ghosts of the slain giants would continue to roam the earth as evil spirits. These spirits were cursed to wander and bring trouble to men. The women who fornicated with the fallen angels were transformed into sirens. And as for the Watchers, they would be banished to the end of heaven and earth in a great abyss full of descending columns of fire where their spirits would lead men astray into worshipping demons as gods. That's pretty low. I like that <laughs> a lot. Yeah. yeah. The Book of Enoch is a kind of extension of the Genesis story in many ways, with the Watchers descending to past knowledge to humanity. There's a kind of Promethean quality to it. 
The giants hearken to Greek myth, but also to Blavatsky's stories of Lemuria and Atlantis. Blavatsky talks specifically about the Atlanteans debasing their spiritual nature and becoming more physical by mating with an elemental race of women, driven by animal impulses rather than the more spiritual and intellectual Atlanteans. Check out our Secret Doctrine episodes for more on that. Sex surfaces in another aspect of Jewish tradition, a lower class of demons called the Masakin. They were half human and half supernatural. There are two groups of Masakin. The first are the children of Adam and Lilith, with Lilith reigning over them as queen. You guys are big Lilith fans, right? Huge Lilith. Yes. Yeah. Huge Lilith. So for those of you who don't know, well, for, go ahead. For folks who don't know, can you tell them who Lilith is? Do you want to go, Bree? Do you want me to go? You, I feel like you can explain this. Well, I feel like she's like mostly referenced, like, well, not even that much, but like Jew, like Hebrew, like the Hebrew Bible, I think brings her up more as like a demon. Right. But like she's supposedly like the first, like before Eve, like she was the first woman and she didn't want to, you know, bow down. Well, and then like, well, then you get into like Gnosticism, then she was made differently than Eve. So that's why she like she wasn't made from Adam. They were made like from the same clay. So it's like different. They're like equals. I just went yeah, on a tangent, but <laughs> no, no, I, I, you're correct. I, yes. My favorite part of the Lilith story is, is that uh, she didn't want Adam wanted to be on top, and she wanted to be on top, and yeah. that was why they fought. Yeah, right. I feel like that's like the yeah sexy times. I mean, literally sexual position they. Anyhow. Good for her. Mm. An icon, so, a queen. <laughs> yes. A queen, yeah. Men, let the women on top. Otherwise, she caused no end of trouble for the world. The second are the Shadim, the offspring of Eve and male spirits, and are ruled over by Asmodeus. Back to Asmodeus. Demons in the Enochian tradition are the children of humanity striving to the knowledge of the angels, but also of the angels debasing themselves by indulging their physical appetites. A lack of humility and also creatural weakness breed evil. A practical occult tradition linked with Enoch comes from the Renaissance magician John Dee, who systematized what he called Enochian magic. D claimed direct revelation from the angels, not unlike Enoch's commerce with angels, good and bad, in his story. And D claimed that he had discovered the secret knowledge alluded to in Enoch. Enoch certainly wasn't the only ancient biblical figure associated with demons, though. The Jewish king Solomon famously consorted with and controlled a host of demons who, in time, came to control him. That brings us to our next, our next text. The Testament of Solomon. Testament of Solomon is a particularly mysterious book. Scholars aren't sure exactly when it was written. It might have been as early as 100 years after the birth of Jesus or as late as 1200. It has Jewish, Christian, and Greek themes. The story begins when a young worker constructing the temple, Solomon's famous temple, is plagued by the demon Ornias. The demon takes half his father's wages and sucks the boy's thumb in the night so that he gets thinner and thinner. Solomon prays and the archangel Michael visits and gives him a ring. I feel like that's a story they told kids to get him to quit sucking their thumbs. Mm, That sounds like it. Take, O Solomon, king, son of David, the gift which the Lord God has sent thee, the highest Sabbath. With it thou shalt lock up all the demons of the earth, male and female, and with their help thou shalt build up Jerusalem. But thou must wear this seal of God, and this engraving of the seal of the ring sent thee is a pentalpha. So Solomon has the boy throw the ring at the demon, binding him. He just toss that ring at the demon and puts the demon to work cutting stones for the temple. And Ornias fetched the master of demons, Beelzebub, by going down into hell and throwing the ring at his chest. So all these demons are getting hit in the head and the chest with rings. It's got to get on your nerves. And Beelzebub brought the female spirit, Onoskelis. Onoskelis, sorry. And Solomon put her to work, weaving for the temple. A little bit of gender discrimination there. Yeah, I was literally about to say. (laughs) What the fuck? I'm going to be summoned. I'm not weaving. (laughs) (laughs) She should be hauling rocks like the rest of them. Yeah. Mm. 
<laughs> then comes Asmodeus. When Asmodeus arrived, Solomon asked who he was, and Asmodeus gave an answer that resonated with Enoch. How shall I answer thee? For thou art a son of man, whereas I was born of an angel's seed by a daughter of man. So let no word of our heavenly kind addressed to the earthborn can be overweening. Wherefore also my star is bright in heaven, and men call it some the wane, and some the dragon's child. I keep near unto the star, so ask me not many things. For thy kingdom also after a little time is to be disrupted. And thy glory is but for a season, and short will be thy tyranny over us. And then we shall again have free range over mankind, so as that they shall revere us as if we were gods, not knowing men that they are the names of the angels set over us. These demons uh, that we're meeting through Solomon are not the fallen angels themselves, but the spirits of the giants they fathered. So these are giant ghosts. Pretty much as Enoch suggested. So the demons, you, you, you get me? They're not the watchers. They're their children okay. who, who died and became <clears throat> evil spirits. Each demon is associated with a star, and all can only be controlled temporarily. Still, having not heard his name, Solomon has Asmodeus flogged a while, and finally Asmodeus relents. You gotta learn the name. I am called Asmodeus among mortals, and my business is to plot against the newly wedded, so that they may not know one another. And I sever them utterly, by many calamities. And I waste away the beauty of virgin women and estrange their hearts. Again, there's a consistency across sources. Asmodeus sounds a lot like the demon in Tobit. These books aren't wholly original creations. They're reflecting traditions which follow a fairly consistent demon lore. Asmodeus goes on to say that Raphael is his archangel nemesis. All demons have an archangel nemesis by the way. And smoking fish guts will put him off. All this goes back to Tobit. Solomon puts him to work digging clay. Ugh, what a way to use Asmodeus. Solomon summons demon after demon and binds them through the power of their heavenly nemesis. Beelzebub is bound by God. Tephras, spirit of the ashes, who comes as a wind, is bound by Azael. The Pleiades, called the Seven Spirit Sisters by Solomon, each have their own angel to bind them. The 36 animal-headed elemental demons, who each give their names and their functions, similarly have their binding angel. There are also demons who appear as lions and dragons, who give their names and functions and archangel counterpart. Solomon meets Ephipas, a demon who appears to be a form of jinn, or genie, rising from a flask and torturing the people of Arabia. So this is just like a, a who's who of demons in the Testament of Solomon. This seems a bit excessive. <clears throat> that too, Brie. Uh, you know, demonology sounds, you know, like it's cool in practice. Uh, but, you know, reading demonology can be a bit tiresome. The Testament of Solomon is, was a kind of early grimoire mapping out the territory of the darker side of the spiritual world with instructions on how to use the lighter side to control it. But, you know, it's just demon after demon after. It's a catalog, basically. Like, how many demons do you need to build a temple? I mean, how fast <laughs> like, do you want it done? I feel like they're... Can't you just hire workers? I don't... Oh, girl, <laughs> shit would have taken so long back then to build. I feel like it took so it much more time expensive. and effort too, yeah. to summon demons also, and enslave them through their archangels. People die. <laughs> Oh my god that's true the demons just keep working uh, but i hear brie this is a long process each individual demon takes a whole thing you need to make like, like a spiritually exhausting you need to make like a guess who but like with the demons do you know what i'm talking about god. like the game yeah the board yeah. Game. like with the with the people it's like and the you describe where... and like you yeah. put down the people isn't that what it's called 
Yes, guess, guess who? who? Never mind. Yeah, he, the one person describes, the other person has to pick it out and say, is it this person? And... I think people are flashing back to childhood and replacing all those funny little cartoon characters Hasbro with demons in their heads now. hit me up, you know? Demons, as Modius suggests, are not easily controlled and do a fair bit of controlling themselves. So now we're going to get some warnings from the demons. Ornias describes himself as weak. Demons fly around the sky and fall because they are too weak to remain up and have nowhere to settle themselves or grab hold. But they are also the agents of destruction, enacting the cruelties of fate in the form of violent and untimely deaths at the command of the higher powers. So they're both weak and strong, dangerous. Solomon wars with the Jebusians, who worship Malak, and he falls in love with a girl there who he wants to marry. The priests tell him he must worship Malak if he wants to have her as one of his wives. Malak famously is the child-devouring demon. You guys know Malak? Yeah. Oh, it's... Never mind. <laughs> yeah. I think I, he's I mean... in, like, nerdy shit. Never mind. Well, the Bible? <laughs> no, I think... Is he in Skyrim, Brianna? Or is that someone else? Um, I think one of the the the, the Daedric princes are modeled after. Him. I think so. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Some nerdy stuff. Moloch, uh, the, uh, traditionally is considered the child devouring demon, but yeah. what we have to bear in mind, and, and I'll get to this in a second, is that most demons were combinations of various different ancient gods who were demonized, literally demonized by the writers of the Old Testament. So, uh, again, the priest told Moloch he's got to worship Moloch if he would like to marry this girl, this Jebusian girl. But Solomon refuses in the name of God. Because, you know, Solomon's like, you know, the king building God's temple, the Jewish king. So he's not going to do that. He's not going to worship some random Moloch. Until one day, when he's chilling with this super hot Jebusian girl in a place where there's probably grass. Because... I only know this because five grasshoppers just happen to be hopping by. And this girl makes a request of Solomon. Here, take these grasshoppers and crush them together in the name of the god Moloch. And then will I sleep with you. In a moment of weakness, Solomon does what she asks and the consequences are immediate. So he basically sacrifices the grasshoppers to Moloch. I'm sorry pretty minor stuff but uh you know who sacrifices grasshoppers to a demon or a god apparently solomon does that just seems disrespectful i'm sorry <laughs> he probably thought eh, you know yahweh won't mind but yahweh minded yahweh would mind yahweh always minds at once the spirit of god had departed from me and i became weak as well as foolish in my words and after that i was obliged by her to build a temple of idols to baal and to Rapha, and to Moloch, and to the other idols. And the glory of God quite departed from me, and my spirit was darkened, and I became the sport of idols and demons. Wherefore I wrote up this testament, that ye who get possession of it may pity, and attend to the last things, and not to the first, so that ye may find grace forever and ever. Amen. The Testament of Solomon teaches a couple key lessons about demons. First, demons are dangerous. Only God's protection keeps Solomon safe from the demons who are just itching for the opportunity to turn the tables and control him. This is a warning that echoes through the history of occultism, all the way to Aleister Crowley. Playing with the darker side of the spirit is like playing with fire. The line between controlling and being controlled by the demon is thin. Second, their use is not limited to evil deeds. They can also help to construct a temple to worship God. In other words, their power can be wielded for good, as we mentioned all the way back with the Babylonians. But they are not inclined to follow you. And going back to lesson number one, they are dangerous and will turn on you the first chance they get. Let's jump forward in time now to Renaissance Europe, shall we? Oh. Oh. Fun. <laughs> The Renaissance. The Renaissance, is here. <laughs> the Renaissance was pretty fun. I mean, funner than before. Uh, the art was pretty. Yeah. Enoch and Solomon were sources for the demonological tracks that followed in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. But as the witch craze got underway, a new imaginative strain of demonology rose from Protestant 
Sources. Demon familiars pledge themselves to the witches they served in exchange for the witch pledging herself to serve the devil. In this contractual arrangement, the demon promised to make the witch happy in this life and the next. The demon appeared as either male or female, sometimes as a satyr, and especially with women as a rank buck goat. Nothing oh. the ladies love more than a rank buck goat. Like rank, right? like like gross rank type rank. You got that 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 musty mm. a musty goat musty musk that manly goatly musk manly goatly musk that's, that's exactly what a girl loves not reading from the sources here i'm just guessing that's what rank refers to the well i mean it's like pheromones or something i don't know the lantern of light was a lollard text we know the lollards uh I think we've talked about the Lollards before because they famously believe Jesus didn't laugh. And they I love got it. Burnt. Yeah. So the Lantern of Light based the major demons on the seven deadly sins, a theme that would carry into later works. There was Lucifer, uh, who was associated with the sin of pride, Beelzebub, gluttony, Satan with wrath, Leviathan with envy. Leviathan usually is a name that refers to a sea monster. Mammon with greed, and and this you hear in in the culture regularly, being a slave to Mammon or Manon. Belphegor was sloth, but it's a hell of a lot of work to say that name. And Asmodeus, back to lust. The Scottish and English King James, best known for the English translation of the Bible he'd sponsored and his survival of uh, Guy Fawkes' gunpowder plot, uh, also for pulling together England and Scotland that's, into a unified Great Britain by virtue of his lineage. That's going to make sure you mention, because that seems uh, yeah. like a important feat. Yeah, but he didn't have to do much. He just had, well, to, that's true. had to be. <laughs> Mary, Mary did a lot. <laughs> yeah. Or tried. Anyhow, he wrote a dissertation on demons in his spare time. He was, by all accounts, fascinated with witch trials and personally oversaw some witch executions. Particularly around his marriage, there was some rumors that witches had tried to sink him and his wife on a boat traveling back and forth to Scotland uh, and to England. So, yeah, anyhow, in his demonology, he demonology, <laughs> demonology, <laughs> in, in that. In that book, he classified demons according to how they sought to injure humans. The spectra, troubled houses and lonely places. Spectra. So they're, you know, like your house spirit. Mm -hmm. The oppressive spirits haunted people externally. So they're, you know, I guess like nag at you like gnats. Possessive spirits occupied you physically. And then there were fairies who were responsible for assisting in sorcery and prophecy. Brie, you have opinions on fairies, don't you? I do, and they don't do much assisting. They're more so troublemakers, especially in a lot of Scandinavian and specifically, like, Norwegian, like, mythology and stuff. Like, like changelings are a major thing in um, a lot of those areas, being fairies that disguise themselves as children and take them and replace them for the rest of their lives. And many people have actually committed murders over thinking changelings were in there their homes their family members so you'd actually take that fourth category and you'd probably call them an oppressive spirit who haunts you from the outside i would call them tricksters yeah more than anything well yeah because they're messing with you right yeah they do little things and they do big big things they're just not usually good you have to please them but don't mess with them our last text to today uh, so we just did a grand tour of some renaissance texts there and we're going to close with the lesser key of solomon ones many of our listeners might be familiar with, but uh, even so, it's worth some time. Uh, And for some very good reasons. First, it's a great example of late Renaissance demonology. And second, it's one of the works updated and incorporated into late 19th century occult revival use. The lesser key, also known as the Clavicula Salamanis Regis, or Legematon, you guys like either of those names? It's a lot. A lot of names out there. Too many names. It was an anonymous book completed in the mid-16th century and eventually translated by McGregor Mathers uh, and edited by Aleister Crowley in the 19th century. 
where we've already talked at length about Crowley's career and interaction with demons. And so with this episode, I, I want to fill in some blanks behind the occult revival's interpretation of demonology. Really, Crowley and friends didn't contribute anything new in terms of literature, although they were very creative in the way they approached these demons. And for more on that, you should go back and check out our Crowley episodes. But a lot of their demon lore came from the Renaissance, the Middle Ages, and antiquity. So the Renaissance, translated by Mathers and Crowley, is a fine place to wind up. We're most concerned with the first book of the Five in the Lesser Key. It's called the Ars Goetia. The Ars Goetia is a list of 72 demons. We are not going to do all 72 flavors here. There's so many demons in every single thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like a Sears catalog. You're just shopping. <laughs> Who do I want today? Uh, but let's check out a few familiar faces and see how they compare. Let's just visit some of the demons we've been talking about today. Crowley observes that our universe is, from a phenomenological perspective, a product of our own interpretation of our sense impressions. He says, we produce our own reality in our brains, and magic is focused on intentionally drawing out elements of subconscious experience or capacity and making them conscious. Crowley says, the spirits of the Goetia are portions of the human brain. Their seals, therefore, represent methods of stimulating or regulating those parts or those particular spots through the eye. You guys believe that? Wait, I'm sorry. I like missed part of what you just said. <laughs> it was a lot. That magic is about the subconscious. It's drawing on the subconscious. Oh, okay. I mean, yeah. I think partially. So, so there's an interaction between the external and internal Brie or what? Yeah, I think that there's definitely, uh, I feel like to a, to get to the external, you have to pull from the internal, if that makes sense. I, the silence says that it does not make I sense. Thought, I thought Olivia was going <laughs> to... No, I'm sorry. I'm trying to... Uh, I'm, I'm just... I'm thinking. Sorry. I was just thinking. Like, I guess you have to you have to pull from whatever subconscious internal there is to actually be able to be opened to the actual external that is around us. Some sort of supernatural plane of, of understanding. Yes. Do you mean like how like some people think in order to experience like ghost activity, you have to believe first? Is that like what you mean? I think Crowley would be on board with that. I guess I'm asking, is that what Brianna meant? I was trying to digest what oh. Brianna was saying, but I don't. I think I guess partially, but I think it also has a lot to do with if you don't explore it yourself subconsciously and internally, I don't think you have as great of a chance to explore it in the waking world. Let's get into some demons. King Bael, number one. Uh, the name itself is a cross between Baal and Beelzebub. The first principal spirit is a king ruling in the east called Baal. He maketh thee to go invisible. He ruleth over 66 legions of infernal spirits. He appeareth in diverse shapes, sometimes like a cat, sometimes like a toad, and sometimes like a man, and sometimes all these forms at once. He speaketh hoarsely. This is his character, which is used to be worn as layman before him who calleth him forth, or else he will not do thee homage. Bael is one of several kings in the Ars Goetia, all of them subordinated to Lucifer. The authors are careful to let you know the name so that you can command the demon, and also the way to identify him in case he tries to fool you. Bael is near the top of a distinctly feudal hierarchy. Demons are described as being dukes, princes, and presidents. King Asmode, yeah, that's sort of random, right? President seems weird. King Asmode, who we know under the name Asmodeus, is number 32 on the list and helps us to understand why identification is so important. He is a great king, strong and powerful. He appeareth with three heads, whereof the first is like a bull, the second like a man, and the third like a ram. He hath also the tail of a serpent, and from his mouth issue flames of fire. His feet are webbed like those of a goose. He sitteth upon an infernal dragon, and beareth in his hand a lance with a banner. He is first and choicest under the power of a maimon. He goeth before all other. A maimon will deceive him and call all his actions to be berayed. As soon as the exorcist seeth Asmodee in the shape aforesaid, he shall call him by his name, saying, Art thou Asmodee? 
and he will not deny it, and by and by he will bow down onto the ground. The entry goes on to say the kinds of things the demon can teach the sorcerer, in this case, arithmetic, but also treasure hunting. Because those go hand in hand. Those are so different things. <laughs> well, you need, you need to do math. You got to count your steps when you're treasure hunting. Do you? I guess. Okay. <laughs> uh, concludes by letting us know that he command. No, I'm with you, Bria. It is random, but I'm just trying. Concludes by letting us know that he commands 72 legions of demons. 72. That's all 72. of them. Legions? Yeah, 72 that's legions. Like multiple within each 72. Oh, wait. Yeah, right? that's more than 72 then. That's a lot of demons, yeah. There's 72 in the book, plus Asmodeus is one of the 72 who himself has 72 legions of demons. Oh my oh god. god. Asmodeus and demons in general, though, are terrific liars, so he could be just exaggerating the size of his penis there. Mm, I see. The sorcerer must know their attributes so that he will not be fooled. We'll take a moment for just one more demon. This one we haven't met before because he features most prominently in the book of Abramelin. The 29th spirit is Ashtaroth. He is a mighty, strong duke, and appeareth in the form of a hurtful angel riding on an infernal beast like a dragon, and carrying in his right hand a viper. Thou must in no wise let him approach too near unto thee, lest he do thee damage by his noisome breath. Wherefore, the magician must hold the magical ring near his face, and that will defend him. He giveth true answers of things past, present, and to come, and can discover all secrets, he will declare wittingly how the spirits fell, if desired, and the reason of his own fall. He can make men wonderfully knowing in all liberal sciences. He ruleth forty legions of spirits. Solomon's magical ring continues as a key element of demon lore. Interestingly, Astaroth is not the offspring of a fallen angel, as in Enoch, but a fallen angel himself. In the Testament of Solomon, Astaroth is counted as a heavenly angel like Raphael and Uriel, whose power opposes the fifth of the Pleiades. Often, as I mentioned earlier, Judeo-Christian demons were gods in other traditions, and their translation could be messy, which is, I think, why we're seeing Astaroth. Sometimes he's an angel, sometimes he's a demon. Baal or Baal was worshipped by the ancient Canaanites before he became Beelzebub. Moloch, the foreign god who undid Solomon, may have been a name that the Jews invented for Baal, which was then translated into its own demonic form as the patron of child sacrifice. Astaroth probably began as the female goddess Astarte and then became an angel and finally a demon, theoretically through his own unique fall, but also possibly just as a matter of the varying traditions around him. So things get mixed up in the mythos. Demonology is the practice of creating a blueprint or roadmap of evil, inside ourselves and outside in the world. In theory, creating these field guides to the demon world allows us to better diagnose and treat the diseases they inflict upon humanity. But like a doctor treating a highly infectious patient, the demonologist is always in danger of being consumed by the forces he seeks to control and to protect us all from. A superstitious part of me was kind of wary about digging around so much in the field of demonology, to be honest. I'm a white light kind of person as a rule, looking for the highest and the best in all things and trying to live with an awareness and appreciation of God's love all around me. But I've also accepted that it's not possible to avoid the darkness entirely, and a self-conscious confrontation in a safe place outside of a crisis can help when that darkness comes for us. Some like to ignore the darker side of our nature and experience, but pretending like it's not there doesn't make it disappear. Demons lurk, whether we like it or not, and in the mythological recesses of our species' unconscious being, the demonologist charts our encounters with our worst impulses, our responses to great misfortune, and our hope for protection and salvation. I'm haunted by the angel Uriel's words to Enoch as he witnesses the vast wasteland of space with neither sky nor earth, full of columns of fire where the fallen angels have been banished to. These angels may be far from creation, but while they dwell in this distant place, their spirits are not confined. They travel across time and space to trouble the lives of men. Here, says Uriel, shall stand the angels, who have connected themselves with women, and their spirits, assuming many different forms, are defiling mankind, 
and shall lead them astray into sacrificing to demons as gods. If we are unsure of our demons, if we cannot name them and identify them, the evils that plague us and our friends and neighbors, our preoccupation with money and status and technology and youth and our own self-righteousness, if we cannot label these demons, how can we be so confident that our sacrifices are in the name of a higher power and not a lower one? That's what I have to say about demons. That's the closest damn, we're going to get to taking the... you to church. Say, so that was the... I don't even think metal is a word to describe what you just did. <laughs> <laughs> you have you have exceeded. You have gone beyond metal. Whoa. For whoa, me. Beyond metal. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I guess, yeah, that was my sermon, I guess. Let's <laughs> gong it on into that order of confessors. <clears throat> Rue142 calls us excellent and educational, wants to let the alchemical actors know they're a talented group. Thank you, Rue. Shen Yun left us what feels like a bit of a haiku, and I quote, Nice job, line break. You did good. Line break, liked this. It's beautiful. Brought a tear. <laughs> it is perfect. Poetic, yeah. Shen Yun suggests, and we agree, that you only listen if you don't take yourself too seriously. We're going to put that in our marketing, I think. Yeah, honestly. And Al Yalasha dropped us a love it. Aww. We love it. Love it. <laughs> Olivia, we got some comments on DMT. Belteshazzar uh, said about our acronyms. Oh, God. Dear God. <laughs> DMT. <laughs> that we should even name an episode with an acronym. Belteshazzar I was like, why would you guys do this? Because yeah. we don't know anything yep. about acronyms. <laughs> That's a good point. Valid. Uh, Ronnie Lane says plants are people too. A- That's right. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get out of here, shall we? I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. We want to thank all our voice actors today. Uh, we want to thank Luke Kinneman for editing today's episode. Uh, we want to thank uh, Andrew Mims and uh, Sean Priest, Brandon Walls, the usual characters in the voice realm. Joining me today at the mic, we had... Uh, Brianna Literal, Metallurgic Prophets. Bye, guys. And Olivia... Also of the literal family, thank, Grandmaster of the Order. Thank God for eyeliner, right? Right? Yeah, that's why it brings all the boys to the yard. Mm. Damn right it does. <laughs> uh, that's it for Demonology. Catch us next time for more in our healing series here on A Call Confessions. Bye!